Hi, I'm Andrew. I'm Kirsten. And this is Most Foul. November. I don't know when this is set to play, but I'm pretty sure it will be November. Yeah, it'll be cooler depending on where in the world you live or warmer. I guess those are the only options. <laughs> I know. I see I see pictures of um, people in Australia doing spring stuff and feeling bitter about it as I look out at the gray rainy sky outside my window right now but even California it might be warmer than it is now (laughs) who really (laughs) knows what's gonna happen I mean the weather there got has gotten so crazy but it's still better than New England weather I can always say (laughs) that with confidence (laughs) yeah outside of a couple hundred and eleven hundred and fifteens for the most part. But honestly, and I know this is just personal preference and there are those who would disagree, but I would take a dry 115 over a muggy as fuck 85. Uh, I think I'm just too in it. I would say a muggy 90 and above. 85 is doable. I mean, I don't even like muggy 56, so that's where I'm coming from. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, if the humidity is high, I'll sweat. It doesn't matter what the temperature is. It could be 48. If it's humid out, I will sweat. It's just a fact, and I hate it. I hate it. I hate it. But it was brutal. This summer was brutal. So many days over 100 where it was, like, really winding up in a, a way I was not comfortable with. I mean, I just saw an article the other day somewhere that... Like, parts of the Middle East and Africa are going to be uninhabitable, like, soon. Like, my lifetime. Like, maybe even my parents' lifetime soon. Well, more good news brought to you by the Most Foul (laughs) Podcast. (laughs) I told you, we always take it someplace dark. But, you know, we're just here getting by like you all, listeners. And we'll, we'll tell you horrendous, gruesome, depressing stuff, but with a smile because that's how we do except trump andrew can't smile through trump stuff well it depends on what the headlines of the future are (laughs) there could be some smiles and going down the road like why are the most evil people they live forever why some about the evil i know it keeps them going it's like they say having a purpose gives you strength so apparently he's found his purpose what else what's going on how was halloween uh you know alcohol filled (laughs) (laughs) have we talked about it on the pod that you don't get hangovers have we talked about that before you know i spend a hundred thousand dollars to give children fentanyl and weed because that's (laughs) what normal people do and the police are obviously telling the truth with all of their press releases (laughs) uh not getting hangovers is great yeah i bet but you still have to limit it because it's like well not having a hangover doesn't mean there's not long-term liver damage not getting hangovers does not make you immortal 
bottom line. Yeah. <laughs> so I still really try to limit my drinking. Well, just in life, generally. But like, you know, on a random Halloween party, it can be nice to overindulge and not have immediate repercussions. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I ask because I'm jealous. You know. It's good. It's good. I do have this fear that one day it's going to be like, surprise, here's all the hangovers you didn't have. (laughs) Well, I do wonder. I don't think it will work like that. I don't think that's how the body works. But I do wonder if, like, everybody says that as they get older, their hangovers get worse. So I wonder if you'll go from nothing to something eventually. Yeah, I mean... Between not having hangovers and not having allergies, I live a really blessed life. Mm, Yeah. And not wearing glasses. Ah, yeah. Yeah. I didn't used to have allergies. I always got hangovers, but obviously not like I do now. And I used to not have to wear glasses. Glasses suck. And the other day I was like, oh, well, maybe I'll just get Lasix. And my mom was like, you know that that's like $6,000 an eye. And I was like, what? I had no idea. That was always kind of was... my backup plan. Maybe it depends on insurance. But I thought my friend was telling me that hers was 1200 and I. Mm. Oh, if insurance covers it, maybe, yeah. I don't know. I assumed that it was not covered because it's optional. I don't know. But wearing reading glasses is a drag. I Anything can happen. I probably should schedule an eye appointment but yeah so far so good you got a few more good years left in you for your eyes probably I didn't really start needing them so I was about 40 40 41 when I started noticing a difference I could put them on and I could read better more easily small small things but I could get by even with pretty small things up until maybe two years ago but it's only within like the last year that unless the lighting is perfect and the type is like pretty decent size, I need them. I need them. Like <laughs> I can't even make it out. If the light is dim <laughs> and the text is small, no, it's just like I'm just guessing here and I'm my face is all contorted and it's just not good. It sucks. Well, I did tell you off pod that I slept really deeply and therefore my hip hurts. (laughs) (laughs) So it's not all sunshine and rainbows. I know. God, mid 30s. It's so bad, Andrew. I was like trying to do stretches and it was like, so I just slept on it. (laughs) That's that's the only thing that happened. Yeah, that's how it starts to be and then it becomes more and more frequent and then one day bam you're 50 and everything's fucked nah i'll be (laughs) half robot by then (laughs) so i'm having the conversation with my dad about hip replacements and this and that he's like i really don't want one and like that's just another generation of thing you know he like the mental block of surgery and needing something and not being young like as soon as someone offers me new hips and knees like I'm in give them to me like I want all the enhancements (laughs) my aunt got her hips redone in her 80s and she was like it's a new lease on life it's incredible and I don't want to wait for that new lease like the minute I start having issues yeah Oh, getting older. And 
you know, it's better than the alternative. The alternative being being dead. Yeah, that was just, I was like, oh, but how do we transition now? (laughs) (laughs) Well, the alternative is, well, I know how we transition because we're talking about a case this week that I lived through and I have, you know, just a couple little personal anecdotes tied to. But what really shocked me as I was doing the research, and we always we always seem to find things that shocked us or surprised us or whatever, is, you know, we're talking today about John Lennon, and I guess I knew, but I never really thought about it or connected it that he was only 40 when he died. And in my mind, he's this really old man because I was a young child when it happened. But he was only 40. Oh my God, that's so young. And then I start thinking about a lot of these events in his life that we're going to talk a little bit more about and how young he was when they all happened. And I was reading, I was like, oh gosh, he was Andrew's age when this happened. But in my mind, he was this much older man and should have been more mature, should have this or should have that. And I had all these judgments I was holding on to. And so doing the research for today's episode gave me a different perspective. Yeah, I mean, plus people's ages then are very different than those same ages today. Right. I mean, 50 is the new 25. That's what I tell my daughter. (laughs) Except for hips. (laughs) Are you ready to dive in? I've already kind of, my transition was a little bit of a, a spoiler, but. I'm ready. All right. So, as I mentioned, we're talking today about the life and untimely death of John Lennon of Beatles fame, um, in case you live under a rock and don't know who John Lennon is. And I'm going to start by talking about his early life. And he was born John Winston Lennon, and he was born in Liverpool, England on October 9th, 1940, to Julia and Alfred Lennon. His father was a merchant seaman, and he was of Irish descent. He may have even been born in Ireland himself. And he was often away from the family because of his job. But he provided for the family financially, and he was periodically in John's life when he was little. But by 1944, Alfred had gone MIA in the merchant marines or the merchant service. I don't know what it's called. He had gone MIA. And Julia at that time was pregnant with a second child by another man. Julia's sister, Mimi, reported Julia and I guess her judgment of Julia's mothering to social services in Liverpool a couple of times. And so around 1945, when John would have been four or five years old, Julia turned over custody of him to Mimi and her husband, George, and they had no biological children, and so they raised him as their own. In school, John was known as a class clown, but also as a kid who was happy-go-lucky and easygoing. Mimi and George hoped that John would do well in school, have a stable 1950s-approved kind of life. Um, They encouraged him to pursue writing and academic pursuits. But even then, at an early age, the first signs of his free spirit were beginning to show. 
He had a real interest in music, and in 1956, Julia bought John his first guitar. And that was to encourage his growing interest in music. Um, but Mimi kind of unsurprisingly didn't really support this interest and wanted him to focus on something that she thought he could make a living doing. Mm-hmm. It was around this time that John formed his first band, which was called The Quarrymen. And it was at the band's second show that John met Paul McCartney. And he soon asked Paul to join the young group. But just as things began to look genuinely promising for the group and for John, his trajectory took a slight bend. On July 15, 1958, when John was just 17, his mother, Julia, was struck and killed by a car. Oh. Yeah. This sudden and traumatic end to her life and to their kind of hot and cold relationship triggered a transformation in John's personality. The good-humored boy became consumed with rage, and he began to drink heavily, get into fights, and neglect his education. And this period of troubled behavior led to a rift between John and Mimi, and so in different ways, he lost a close connection with both of his mother figures, and probably by extension his uncle George, who had been a steadying force, and the only real consistent male influence in his life. Around this time, John failed his O-level exams, which is kind of like our high school diploma here in the States. But in spite of that, he was accepted into the Liverpool College of Art due to the intervention of Mimi and his former headmaster. Mm -hmm. So even though there was strife, Mimi was still on his side and pulling for him. John made some efforts at art school, and by all accounts, he was a creative kid, a creative guy. He drew, he wrote poems and other things, but music was his main focus. McCartney recommended his friend George Harrison to join the Quarrymen, and John's art school friend Stuart Sutcliffe joined as well. Although none of the boys' dreams of rock stardom were supported at home, they were all permitted to pursue their dreams. Even George, who amazingly was only 14 when he first came on board with the band. That's wild. Isn't that crazy? And so in early 1960, when John was not yet 20, the Quarrymen changed their name to the Beatles, and they added Pete Best on drums. The first of their three kind of well-known residencies in Hamburg, West Germany, came in August of that year. Now, I'm not going to go into a lot of detail about the Beatles themselves, because all of that is very well worn, and Andrew will cover the high notes in his section. But for the purposes of my side of the story, I'll just say that by 1963, the Beatles had their final lineup, Lennon, McCartney, Harrison, and Starr, Ringo Starr, and they were having tremendous mainstream success in the UK. They were touring and churning out hits, and phrases like Beatlemania and the Fab Four were coined. In February 1964, the Beatles made their now famous appearance on The Ed Sullivan Show in the United States, and the rest, as they say, is history. As time went on, though, John Lennon became, I would say, uncomfortable with his fame. 
He continued to abuse substances. Essentially, the demons that he had carried forward from his youth stayed with him during this time. He married a classmate who he had met at Liverpool Art College, whose name is Cynthia Powell. They got married and they had a child in 1963. So by the mid-60s, Lennon was very disenchanted with society, with being famous, with the life that he was leading, and he started looking for other avenues to express himself. Again, all this while, Lennon and the rest of the Beatles were experimenting and exploring with different mind-altering substances, um, as well as self-medicating, I think, and abusing different substances. Mm -hmm. So... In 1966, the Beatles performed what would be their final concert as a band. By this time, their music had taken on a completely different tenor from the music that they were producing in the early part of their career. At the beginning, their music was very poppy, and I read quotes from some of the band members saying that in many ways, the lyrics didn't even matter. It was all about the music, the pop, the feel. Mm hmm but in 1967, the band released the Sgt. Pepper's Lonely Hearts Club Band, and their fans went along on this ride with them. Again, Andrew will get into more of this. But even the shift in the tone of the music they were producing wasn't enough for Lennon, and he decided to venture out on his own. By late 1968, his drug use had increased. He was continuing in a relationship with Yoko Ono. And there was a lot of disagreement amongst the band members about the direction that they should take. Lennon started producing music on his own, writing his own songs, and he really saw that as a way forward for him. So in March of 1969, Yoko and John Lennon married, and this marks the beginning of his career as an activist. They used the occasion of their honeymoon to stage what they called a bed-in, which was a protest, uh, protesting the war, Vietnam War. And to protest, they basically sat in bed. Now, this was met with ridicule by the public and the media. And, you know, we hear it a lot now when celebrities or famous people talk out about all kinds of different political issues. Stay in your lane. Just go back to what you were doing. This isn't your concern. And so he faced a lot of that. And I think there was also, beginning even then, a nostalgia for an earlier time. You know, if you look at the 60s as a decade, the beginning of the 60s and the end of the 60s almost feel like two different complete epochs, you know? Mm -hmm. And that was very much captured in the Beatles. The beginning, you know, they're clean cut, although at the time they were seen as having shaggy hairdos, but they were <laughs> uh -huh. clean, clean cut, wearing suits, performing poppy, non-controversial kind of music. And that was in contrast to the hip thrusting of Elvis, you know, so they were seen as a safe kind of boy band like we still see today. But by the mid to late 60s, we have Beatles who are full-on hippies, long hair, beards, doing drugs, LSD, trippy, and, you know, infusing anti-war sentiment into their music. Lennon wanted to take it one step further, and he really felt that he needed to be on his own to do that. 
So after the marriage with Yoko, he launched really officially his solo career and his activism Mm -hmm. stepped up to the next level. They started doing things as a couple like primal therapy and, you know, couples nude photo shoots and things that just made America very uncomfortable, but things that will seem very familiar to our pop culture landscape now. Now, what's not commonly known is that in spite of Yoko Ono and their relationship being blamed for the breakup of the Beatles, which is not actually a thing, and I think that's pretty well covered by now, and how they were portrayed in the media as this super solid couple and almost as her, this older woman, having control over him in some ways, he was still reeling from the traumas and the losses in his childhood. And so his drug and alcohol abuse was increasing. In his private life, he could be very cruel and even violent at times. Mm-hmm. And I think by all accounts, he was not a very good father to his son from his first marriage. So this time is very tumultuous for him, even though the PR machine was spinning out this peace and love and he was doing a lot of anti-war activism, his private life was something different altogether. Totally. And so in 1973, Yoko and John decided to separate and they were actually apart for more than a year during this time. And John began an affair with another woman, um, not secretly an affair, but, you know, a relationship outside of the marriage, if we use the kind of technical definition of affair. And Yoko was doing her own thing. Again, a very creative person. She's been painted in our media as almost like a parasite of the Beatles and Lennon's fame, but she was an artist in her own right. And so she's doing her own thing during this time. But This was a really dark period for John Lennon, and he referred to it later as his, quote, lost weekend. And so he started hanging out with musician Harry Nilsson, and they actually started making headlines for his bad behavior and and Harry's too, I suppose. But, you know, scuffles and drunken antics, essentially, during this time and kind of coming off the rails a bit. He's still making music, he's still doing some activism, but his life is kind of coming undone a bit at this time. Around 1974, early 75, Yoko and John reunite, and Lennon decides he's going to essentially end his lost weekend, come back into the life that he had before. I don't know if he was able to tame some of his demons during that time. But he came back into the marriage and back into his career. And in October of 1975, Yoko had a son who was born actually on John's 35th birthday. I think that was the one that hit me, how young he was (laughs) Uh when I read that on his 35th birthday. And I thought of you, Andrew. And at this time, after Sean was born, Lennon decided to focus on his family. And he stayed home with Sean and raised him while Yoko was producing art, 
So he didn't completely unplug from the music scene, but he wasn't putting out music in the same way that he had before. But he also wasn't out carousing as he had been for the year, year and a half before that either. His life was kind of slowly coming back together. In 1980, John was ready to emerge from this long hiatus at this point. And he began recording material for an album. In October of that year, he released a single. And the single was called Just Like Starting Over. He was preparing to release the album that that single came from. As he was coming back in, it seemed like this time away, this rest, and even his, quote, lost weekend had rejuvenated him in some way. And of course, he's now older and more mature and perhaps felt more in control of his fate career-wise, where at the beginning in his 20s, you know, a lot of what we see coming out of um, former boy banders, recovering from that pressure, from that lack of Mm -hmm. control creatively and logistically. And so it seemed like he was on the precipice of really getting back into his life. But fate had other plans for John Lennon. In the evening of December 8th, 1980, John and Yoko left the Dakota where they lived for a recording session. They finished the recording session and they were heading home. John and Yoko took a limo at around 10.50 p.m. that evening back to the Dakota. As they got out of the car, they walked into the building through the archway and a man came up from behind and shot John Lennon twice in the back and twice in the shoulder at very close range. Lennon was rushed into a police cruiser that took him to Roosevelt Hospital right away, but he was pronounced dead on arrival at 11.15 p.m. that night. After the crime, there was no hunt for the killer. It was a very highly trafficked area and many witnesses to the crime. The killer actually remained in the area watching the chaos that he had created and reading a book while he waited for authorities to come and arrest him. The shooter's name was Mark David Chapman, and as fate would have it, it was the fan who had asked for the autograph as John and Yoko left for the recording studio earlier that night. What police found out later, after they had arrested Chapman and interviewed him, is that he had flown to New York from Hawaii specifically with the goal of killing Lennon. He had waited for him outside their apartment in the Dakota from the early morning of December 8th, and he spent most of the day that day near the entrance waiting for them to leave. He was talking to other fans who were hanging around the door and the doorman. During that morning, Chapman had been distracted and missed seeing him come and go, doing whatever he was doing that morning. Um, But later, he bumped into the Lennon family's nanny, whose name is Helen Seaman, and she was coming back from a walk with uh, Sean Lennon, their, their son, and spoke with her, quoted one of his songs, just deeply creepy. I mean, there's not always a vibe, but you would assume there would be bad vibes. Yeah. Later, Chapman told 
reporters that John had actually been very kind to him when he got the autograph in the evening, saying, quote, He was very kind to me, ironically very kind, and was very patient with me. The limousine was waiting, and he took his time with me, and he got the pen going, and he signed my album. He asked me if I needed anything else. I said, no, no, sir, and he walked away. Very cordial and decent man, end quote. So this incident was stunning to people around the world. It was, I would say, I've been searching for an analog to compare it to, and the Queen springs to mind because that's a recent event, but I would say probably a closer analog would be the assassination of JFK. It was something that just shut shit down. I mean, completely. People were stunned that, A, anyone would want to, B, that it could be successful, um, and then just grief and sadness. Because again, we know a lot now in hindsight, but at the time, the PR machine for John Lennon was very much peace, love, a lot of the darker aspects of his life weren't really known publicly until later. So mm-hmm. this was seen as a huge creative loss, but also the loss of a human being that a lot of people looked up to and admired for his activism. Yeah, I mean, we'll get into the culture next week, but it, I mean, a pop culture watershed moment. Yeah. Now, people immediately began to gather The next day, on December 9th, Yoko told the crowd outside her apartment, they were chanting through the night, and she told them that they had kept her awake the night before. And so she asked that they reconvene um, in Central Park the following Sunday for 10 minutes of silent prayer. And so on December 14th, millions of people gathered, and they paused for 10 minutes of silence to remember him. 30,000 people gathered in his hometown, Liverpool, um, and the largest group ever at the time, over 225,000, gathered in Central Park itself. And so for those 10 minutes, again, millions of people around the world recognized this, this time of silent prayer, and Every radio station in New York City went off the air for that time. I mean, just unheard of. So again, Andrew will go into that more, but just a watershed moment in American, I would say English-speaking cultural history. Yeah. Now, when we look at the investigation, the big question, everyone wanted to know why. Why would this guy shoot Lennon. He was a fan. He got his album signed. It just didn't make any sense. And so Chapman later talked about his kind of reasoning. One of the reasons he had said was that he was angered by some of the lyrics in his recent music. So we're seeing this tension between the Beatles' John Lennon and this kind of later iteration of John Lennon. Also, in anticipation of the album that was coming out, he started doing press junkets, and, you know, he was known for saying some controversial things. Lennon's infamous quote from 1966, when he said that the Beatles were, quote, more popular than Jesus, end quote. And so, even as Chapman had been a fan, there were parts of Lennon's 
belief system that he didn't align with, essentially. Combined with that, he seemed to have an obsession with the J.D. Salinger novel, The Catcher in the Rye. And so he was very, I would say, obsessed might be strong, but he was low-key obsessed with the idea of hypocrisy and phonies, which came out of that very influential novel. And so he was seeing some of this hypocrisy in Lenin as he moved from his pop boy band days to his activism days. And he took issue with some of the things that he said, some of the lyrics in the Beatles songs, but also his later solo releases. And so for whatever reason, whatever twisted thing in his mind, he came to the conclusion that the way forward was to kill John Lennon. And like I said, he had been planning this for some time. He, in October, on October 27th, 1980, he purchased a five-shot thirty-eight caliber revolver um, in Honolulu, where he lived. And then he flew to New York on October 29th. And just to give a sense of how premeditated this was, he had reached out to the Federal Aviation Administration to learn the best way to transport a revolver. So. He knew what he was doing. He bought the revolver. He needed a plan for getting it from Hawaii to New York. And he also learned that bullets can be damaged on on a plane. So he took the gun without ammunition, um, and he had a plan. He would get ammunition when he got there. He left New York in November, around the 12th or the 13th, and then he flew back on December 6th. So he did a practice run with the gun. I mean, he had this all very planned out. And he checked into the YMCA on the Upper West Side of New York of Manhattan. And then he moved in subsequent nights to the Sheraton Hotel in Midtown. So he was near where he needed to be. So again, what, you know, came from Catcher in the Rye, this obsession with adult hypocrisy and phonies, um, and also probably an obsession with the Beatles and with John Lennon, how that all came together in his sick mind and was translated into this compulsion to kill. No one will ever really know, but that is how the crime came to be. It's so bizarre. It's so bizarre. And no wonder that people have theories. Yeah. And so, of course, we never just let it lie there. There's always more to it, especially with cases that, you know, on the surface are seemingly simple. And in this case, it's no different. Because of his activity with anti-war, the anti-war movement and demonstrations and protests, Lenin had really flagged himself up for scrutiny under especially the Nixon administration. At the time, not a lot of people really loved the anti-war movement. Um, As you said before, I think, like, we love war here. And the protesters were viewed as traitorous, and it was making little of the sacrifice of the soldiers who were there. And so on and so on. So, you know, in some circles, he was praised as almost a prophet, right, for using his voice to 
support the anti-war movement, but there were a lot of people who really had an issue with his involvement in that, particularly because, you know, he wasn't American by birth. So again, a lot of this, why don't you stay out of it, stick to your own lane kind of thing. It's crazy. It is crazy. But in 1972, this really reached a fever pitch. So again, Andrew's going to talk in detail about the culture side, but Lennon had released two songs. The first one called Give Peace a Chance, um, an obvious kind of anti-war sentiment there. And the second song, Happy Christmas, War is Over, again, both very obviously anti-war songs. And Nixon had heard rumors, a.k.a. had people spying on Lenin and heard, quote, heard rumors that Lenin was to be involved in a concert, an anti-war concert, at the same time as the Republican National Convention was to be taking place. And so because it's Nixon, he had this great idea that he was going to have Lenin deported. And he really believed in his little brain that Lenin's anti-war activities were going to keep him from winning re-election. So Republican Senator Strom Thurmond, everybody's favorite. Piece of shit. (laughs) Everybody's favorite piece of shit. I like that. He suggested in a February 1972 memo that, quote, deportation would be a strategic countermeasure, end quote, against Lenin. So the next month, the Immigration and Naturalization Service, again, everybody's favorite, they started um, deportation proceedings. And they argued that he had misdemeanor convictions for um, weed possession in London in 1968. So not even here. But they argued that that conviction um, made him ineligible for admission to the U.S. And so... Lenin spent the next three years tied up in this bullshit of fighting deportation. And also during this time, Nixon had FBI surveillance on him. So he was someone who was being tracked. And, you know, this today comes as no surprise to us. Now we know that Mickey Dolan's of the Monkees had a file and he's fighting right now to have that information released. The FBI at the time was surveilling lots and lots of different people who they felt might pose some threat to the status quo. So because of this activity and this kind of surveillance, there are thoughts that perhaps Lenin might have been a target of the government. And maybe there was more to his murder than a simple obsessed fan stalker type killing. And so, you know, this is a theory that continues to float out there. I think it's pretty slam dunk. You know, people saw Mark Chapman do it. The question is, was he prompted in any kind of way? Similar to the Robert Kennedy. Like, everyone knows that Sirhan Sirhan pulled the trigger. But what was behind that? And was there more at work? Yeah. And like good theories, there's no hard answer. Mm Mm-hmm. But it's certainly not unbelievable. It's not at all. And, you know, 
Nixon, a crazy kind of guy. And in some ways, you know, maybe it wasn't simple paranoia. I mean, was Nixon paranoid? Absolutely. But did Lenin have the kind of stature that could swing an election? Yeah, he kind of did. And you'll go into it more again later, Andrew, but that's really evidenced by the outpouring of grief when he died. Yeah. Whew. And so many years later, Yoko Ono finally came out in an interview, I think it was 2007, and she talked about his final moments. And in particular, people had wanted to know, and I, you know, I think this is just one of those maybe slightly macabre things that people like to know, but people had wanted to know for a long time what his final words were. And I think, you know, I alluded to kind of his public persona versus his private persona and his private persona having a lot of darkness there. But I think what she revealed as his final words says a lot about where he was going in life as opposed to where he had come from and the darkness that he had been in. And this is a quote from Yoko, quote, I said, shall we go and have dinner before we go home? And John said, no, let's go home because I want to see Sean before he goes to sleep, end quote. And just as it many times is, his final words were not prophetic. They weren't particularly profound. They were very banal in the true sense of the word. Mm -hmm. But again, it speaks volumes about where he was going and he was on this kind of precipice of a new chapter in his life and hopefully a much brighter one. Yeah, totally. But the last thing of interest here before I turn it over, and I think this is a good transition into your area, is I talked a lot about, you know, the impact um, on people. And, you know, my memory of this time, I was eight when he died. And I remember very distinctly, you know, I grew up in Missouri, a kind of conservative place. But I remember very distinctly Maybe two months after the assassination, a pickup truck in my town popped up with Lenin Lives painted on the tailgate. And I remember seeing that pickup in town driving around for years after this happened. And it just made such an impression on me. You know, at eight, I didn't really fully comprehend what had happened, just that a famous person had died. But I didn't grasp the enormity of the Beatles or anything like that. Um, but, you know, just. If it reaches the smallest town, the little girl in the smallest town without any connection to any of the larger goings on, that, that gives a sense of what it was at that time. But immediately after Lennon was shot, he was taken to the Roosevelt Hospital, as I had said. And it just so happened that a reporter from ABC News was at the hospital having something checked out after a motorcycle accident he had been in. And he saw John Lennon be brought in with police all around. And so that is how news of his death had initially leaked out. As a reporter saw him come in, of course, he was dead on arrival, so he may have been covered. And so this reporter reached out to the newsroom and, and told ABC News. And so, of course, they went through their routine of verifying and fact-checking, and they confirmed that, yes, he was dead. And so the timing of that, it reached the news desk just as ABC was airing a football game 
And it was a game between the Miami Dolphins and the New England Patriots. And just to give a sense, again, this is way before the 24-hour news cycle, before news breaks would come in, before all of that. This is just, you know, a football game is on and a football game is going to show. And Howard Cosell and Frank Gifford were in the middle of announcing this football game when news came in. And Howard Cosell initially kind of refused to break into the game and announce the death of John Lennon because he reasoned that it would trivialize it, right? Not because he didn't want to, but he felt it would be strange to talk about something this momentous over a football game. And according to legend, Frank Gifford convinced him that he had to. He couldn't hold on to news like this. And so Howard Cosell breaks in, and I'm going to read the direct quote from this. Quote, remember, this is just a football game, no matter who wins or loses. An unspeakable tragedy confirmed to us by ABC News in New York City. John Lennon, outside of his apartment building on the west side of New York City, the most famous, perhaps, of all the Beatles, shot twice in the back, rushed to Roosevelt Hospital, dead on arrival. Hard to go back to the game after that news flash, which, in duty bound, we have to take. End quote. And that just feels, I don't know, in a, in a strange way, like the end of an era of sorts for news, for music, for so many things. But I thought it was very fitting and I would include it here because it's a little interesting tidbit of this that I didn't know. This part actually made me kind of sad because Yoko asked for the information not to be released because she wanted to tell Sean first and mm-hmm. felt that Sean would be watching the TV. Mm-hmm. But ABC ran it. So I don't know exactly what that says to yeah. our right to information and like our modern world that we're in right now, but it struck me. Yeah, definitely. And I mean, even if the terrible events that we're talking about in this episode had never happened, being the child of John Lennon wouldn't have been an easy road to hoe anyway. No. But certainly not when you factor in his death, but also the circumstances around it. And it's very sad because it mirrors in many ways the loss of his mother and the ways that traumatized him and affected his whole life. Whew, that's a, yeah. a big one. It is a big one, and it's hard. And, you know, I'm, I'm not going to go a lot into Chapman, you know, we, we do sometimes go into detail about killers, but we always say whatever kind of take we have on a story that we center the victims. And in this case, you know, Chapman is just not that interesting. So next week, we're going to get into sort of the pop culture at large and then the pop culture fallout of this crime. Yeah. It's a big one. So interesting. I can't wait to hear your part of it because this is one where it seems all intertwined. And those to me are the best. As always, listeners, we appreciate the hell out of you. Abso-fucking-lutely. Please head over to Apple Podcasts and rate and review our show. It really helps us out. Plus, we'll read five-star reviews on an upcoming episode. This has been a Facts from Janet production. 